Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Friday, the 5th of November, 2021. Uh, Our brother, Paul Perot, is in Honduras with uh, a a partner ministry of ours um, and with a team from Northwestern Media. So we want to pray God's mercy upon them. We thank God for travel mercies, and now we pray a hedge of protection around them that God would open up their hearts and minds to understand the needs of people in Honduras and and help us to understand the needs of our neighbors, uh, just a few countries to the south of us. All right, so um, so thank you to Ryan Mitchell, who is on the board this morning and helping make uh, the radio magic happen. So thankful, so thankful for Ryan. Um, what if I told you this morning that this weekend you were going to get an extra hour? All right, so here it comes. You're going to get an extra hour this weekend. So what are you going to do with it? And and don't don't say, oh, you know, it, it's coming in the middle of the night on Saturday, so I'm just going to sleep through my extra hour. Let's just think about this. Just pause for just a moment, because in every other day of the year, except for one when we're robbed of an hour. But anyway, um, in every other day of the year, we get 24 hours in a day. But this weekend, we're getting 25. So what are you going to do with it? What are the options? You just spend a little time prior to, you know, daylight savings time ending this weekend and the clocks falling back and getting an extra hour. And I know everyone listening now in Arizona, um, I feel like there's some other places where they don't, you know, the time doesn't change. But Arizona, I'm acutely aware of. Like, I know this grieves you. The rest of us are going to get an extra hour and you're just stuck with the same 24 hours you had uh, going into this. But here we go. The rest of us are going to get an extra hour. What are you going to do with it? What are the options? Like, make a list. All right, if I had an extra hour, what what am I going to do with my extra hour? And what's the priority among those options? Because when I got thinking about this, like the extra hour, you know, just to be honest with you, what came to mind was just the giant, horrendous list of things that just don't get done. Like, I seriously need to clean out my closet. I have right now boxes in the back of my car that need to go to Goodwill and to uh to to the to the little lending library um I, I just like I have some stuff that you know on that list of things that just oh I'll I'll do that when I get some time so are those the things that I'm going to do with my extra hour I have to tell you no like I just am like no I don't want to give up my extra hour for things that are just on the when I get a little extra time I'll do that list. I like want to somehow make my extra hour like super duper special. I do not yet by the way have a plan. I just I'm just presenting you with the problem, with the opportunity that I think that there are a list of options that I could generate for how I might positively, purposefully, joyfully, redemptively invest the extra hour that I'm going to get this weekend. I already know it's coming. Like I'm, I'm, 
I can anticipate in advance that I'm going to have an extra hour. So what am I going to do with it? What are you going to do with your extra hour when daylight savings time ends this weekend and clocks fall back, fall back? Um, So it also got me thinking about turning back time because that's like part of what happens, right? We turn back time. You get up on Sunday morning and it's not, you know, 7 a.m. It's 6 a.m. Like you got an extra hour. Woohoo! Uh, It got me thinking about a conversation that I had once about a person who was hoping, who was hoping that maybe God would turn back time and create an opportunity for him to share with this friend of his who died suddenly and tragically um, when we were in college. He was just like wishing, you know, that God would turn back time so that he could share the gospel with that friend. Because, you know, none of us knew that that he was going to die. And this friend of mine just was like grieving, like... Could God just turn back time and let me have the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel um, with this friend? And here's the reality. God doesn't turn back time. He doesn't turn back time. We got to take the time that we've been given in this day to advance the gospel in every direction and share the good news of God's redeeming love with everyone, with everyone, that when their time runs out, it will not have been too short for them to have heard and responded to the good news of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do with your extra hour? Maybe I have provoked you to consider sharing the gospel with someone whose time may be short. All right. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be here right back. All right, every once in a while, I just uh, preserve a little time to just talk with you personally, just the two of us. And so um, thanks for this opportunity this morning to get together. Um, I'm going to lead off with a very, very brief um, farm report because it's Friday and I don't want to fail to give you the Friday farm report from what's going on at home. And then I want to talk about pain. I want to talk this morning about our personal pain um, and my, uh, I mean, I don't even have to guess, <clears throat> my confidence is that if you are in any kind of pain this morning, um, you don't have to be reminded of it because it's, it literally presses in upon us in every moment. So we're going to address that in just a moment. Uh, the Friday Farm Report. The sweet potato harvest did not, well, I mean, the sweet potato harvest went well, the sweet potato harvest did not yield well. It was very disappointing. Very disappointing uh, sweet potato harvest at the LaBerge uh, household this past weekend. We did everything that we've always done in the past, and I don't know, maybe it was too wet this year. Maybe we waited slightly too long. I don't know. I don't know. We didn't do anything differently, but nasty was the reality of the sweet potato harvest because what looked like perfectly formed sweet potatoes, when you went to pick them, they just smushed in your hand. They were they were rotten through and through. So we got, instead of like a tractor bucket load of sweet potatoes, which is sort of like our normal yield, which I know sounds like a lot, but it's like the sufficient amount of sweet potatoes for a family of our size uh, and love of the sweet potato. Um, instead, we had like less than a wheelbarrow full. So... Uh, I know. 
I, not that there is a shortage of sweet potatoes in the world, but in our household, there's going to be a shortage pretty quickly. Um, and and let me just tell you, the joy and delight of everybody out there in the garden cultivating the sweet potatoes uh, at the end of uh, the long growing season, yeah, that was completely different. Um, the joy that we ordinarily have uh, with everybody out there, well, that was transformed in a moment the first time each one of us grabbed a nasty, rotten potato. Like, oh, it's so foul. Anyway, there you go. That's the uh, <clears throat> Friday Farm Report from here um, at the LaBerge homestead. All right. I want to talk uh, this morning about personal pain. Uh, someone I love very much is suffering right now, and it's her news to tell, not mine. So I'm going to just say that. Somebody I love very much is suffering right now. She is in great pain. And I want to help her. I want to help her. And I'm doing what I can, which is from a distance, praying and calling and checking in and making sure that the people who are in physical proximity to tend personally are doing so. But there's literally only so much I can do for her because she is just going to have to suffer through this period of acute pain um, related to uh, a virus that she's suffering with. And if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, you know this feeling. The first time that your child fell, the first time that their heart was broken, or the second time or the third time. Um, the times that they've been left out and they experience this deep, acute pain of missing out on something when they've been rejected, when they're homesick, when your child is in pain, you're in pain. So I want to remind us this morning that the same holds true for us right now. When we're in pain, our Father in Heaven feels it. He's literally right there with us. So in seeking to address my own sense of powerlessness in the face of the pain of my precious a friend, uh, and what she's facing today, I thought I'd share a few things that God is uh, reminding me of in the midst of pain. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. If you've got a pen and paper, now's the time to grab it. And if you just tuned in, we are uh, talking about the problem of pain uh, and the presence of God in the midst of our pain and reminders that I think we all need when we are facing um, pain, acute or long term, and when those who we love best in the world are facing pain. I, I just think that every once in a while we need to circle back around and we need to remind ourselves um, as we as Christians address the problem of the reality of pain. So first, I have reminded myself in the in the face of this uh, individual's pain, this, this person who I just love dearly, and I, I would just do anything to alleviate the pain that she's experiencing. But of course, I am not able to do that. So I am reminded that we're not alone in our pain. We are not alone when we are in pain. You are not alone. You are not alone. 
in the midst of whatever pain you're experiencing right now. So even though I can't be there, or you can't be there with the person who you love that's in pain right now, God is there. God is present. God was with Hagar in the midst of the pain of being thrown out with her young son into the wilderness. God was with Hannah in the midst of the pain and the shame of the barrenness of her womb. God was with Ruth and Naomi in the pain of financial and personal uh, grief, living as widows, needing to find a place to live and a way to survive. God was with the woman that Jesus healed of that painful ailment that she'd been suffering for 12 years. God was with the woman at the, at the well, the woman from Samaria, in all her pain. He was totally aware of it and present in the midst of it, and she didn't know it. Each one suffered greatly, but none of them were ever alone. They were never unaccounted for. They were never outside of God's awareness. God was with them, even in the moments and the days and the weeks and the years when they felt utterly alone in their pain. God has promised through the very words of Jesus in John chapter 14 to never leave us and to never forsake us. How does that happen? Because by the very present power of God's own Holy Spirit, we are not alone. He is with us right now and always. Whatever you're suffering right now, whatever pain you're in, whatever you're facing, you are not alone. God is very present right there with you and for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that you feel him. You feel the presence of God right now holding you in the very hollow of his hand, drawing you under the covering of his wings, wiping away your tear, holding you, enfolding you, surrounding you, alleviating you of whatever burden it is that you are too human to bear. The Greek word for the Holy Spirit is literally translated to the one who comes alongside. I want you to remember that. When you're tempted to imagine that you're all alone in your grief or in your pain or in your suffering, I want you to remember the Holy Spirit is literally the one who comes alongside you. It's a lie to imagine that you're alone in your pain. The truth is, you are not alone. God has come alongside you. You can lean on him. Don't, don't give up in the human sense of giving up, like that phrase of like giving up. Instead, I want, I want to invite us to consider giving up to the redeemed reality that Christ is right here with us, closer than our next breath, right now, to bear for us what we cannot bear and to bear for those whom we love what they cannot bear. All right, so you're not alone. Second, God wants us to know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have walked similar paths of pain. And I know that it doesn't help in the midst of your pain for me to say that I have been there I have been there before, that others have walked through this fire or through this flood that you're now navigating and that they have found God to be faithful in and through it. 
But we need to remind one another of the comfort with which we have been comforted. We also need to remind one another that Jesus has been there. Jesus has been where you are. He has faced the physical pain of an unjustified arrest, a crown of thorns pressed into his head, beating with whips that tore through his flesh, the ultimate physical pain of crucifixion. But Jesus also suffered in other ways, the personal pain of being judged for having parents who weren't married when he was conceived. Jesus suffered the pain of the loss of a parent. Joseph died somewhere along the way. Jesus grew up in a family that struggled financially. He had to rely on gifts brought by others in order to survive. Jesus knows the pain of living as a refugee child. He knows the pain of a family that did not understand him or his calling in this world. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by his friends and rejected by people who he desperately loved, falsely accused of a crime he did not commit, and the humiliation of public exposure. Real pain. Jesus experienced the very real pain of public opinion turned against him, and yes, the total canceling of the culture of his day, even unto death. The pain we suffer is a pain Jesus knows. He knows what it feels like in the moment to wonder whether or not God has abandoned you. Jesus went through the pain we face. He felt the things we feel. And I know that right now in the midst of pain, that sounds crazy to say. I know it also sounds equally crazy to say that none of it is a surprise to God and that it has a purpose. What? How could that possibly be true? God is sad and God cares and God is a good, good father. And he does not like it when we hurt, but he's not surprised by it. God is aware and he knows what he's doing, which leads to the purpose part that's often a mystery to us in the midst of it. But afterwards, we can often see what God was doing. God knows what he intends to do through the pain. He's not causing it, but he is allowing it. And one of the most difficult things about pain is the feeling that it's pointless. What point could this possibly have? It's a disruption. It's an intrusion into my life. It derails and interrupts and frustrates. We literally use the word patient to describe ourselves or the person um, who's in the pain. And we don't like waiting. We are impatient. So to say that there's a purpose implies that there's a reason and we can't see that in the midst of our suffering. But that's the testimony of the scriptures. That's the testimony of the Bible. It's the testimony that God works through even the most painful realities together for good. It is the testimony of Good Friday. It's the testimony of the cross. And that doesn't mean that God causes it. It does mean that God can bring even our senseless pain to the point of a redemptive purpose. How, you ask? Well, all right, we're here talking about it, aren't we? Like we're talking about our pain. And in talking about our pain and the one who ultimately relieves our pain and uses our pain, gives a purpose to it, right now because we're bearing witness to the testimony of our own brokenness of our own condition and to the reality of God's goodness and his presence and his sufficiency and his plan so with that in mind let me remind us this morning that God uses our pain he uses our pain 
for the very good of drawing people to himself, which is why we tell the story. That's why we tell the story. Romans eight twenty eight. we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, whom he has called according to his purpose. God uses all things. God uses um, things that we cannot imagine. He uses the evil that others intend. Remember Joseph. He's present in the midst of suffering. He walks with us into the fire. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember Daniel in the lion's den. Remember Jesus in the garden and on the cross. And in this present moment of your pain, I want you to believe it's not impossible for God to work. He sees you. He knows you. He's present with you. With Paul, Romans 8:18 here. With Paul, let us consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, which is a good reminder that pain does not persist. This pain will end. Are you in pain this morning? Are you suffering? I know it hurts. And I want to encourage you. I want to comfort you with the comfort with which I have been comforted. You are God's child. You are loved. He is sad. He is with you. He is sufficient even unto this. Let me invite you to turn to him, listen to him, trust him. He is a good, good father. In Jesus, he has been where you are. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is closer to you than your next breath. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. It's like the brightest sunrise waiting on the other side of the darkest night. Don't ever know. All right. Are you a reluctant convert? Do you know one? Do you know who C.S. Lewis was? Is C.S. Lewis an influence in your life and life of faith today? Is he a part of your story? He's a part of my story. Um, We are going to talk with Dan DeWitt about the untold story of C.S. Lewis, the most reluctant convert. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I have three gorgeous grandchildren, ranging in age from infant to hard to believe middle school. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you're lucky enough to have grandkids, you know the joy they bring into your home. But lest you be tempted to hide out in peace and tranquility of your home, remember this, it isn't a time to sit back and disengage just because your parenting is done. Your role is actually just beginning. Every day presents another occasion to invest in your grandchild's life. I strive to be a grandpa who's ready and interested in the lives of my grandchildren. As grandparents, you and I can make a difference for generations to come. Let's make this the best season of our lives. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. Dan DeWitt. You know him from the Weekend Worldview Reader, which you can find at theolatte.com. Dan, welcome back. It's great to be back. 
All right. So you went to a movie, um, and when you got there, it felt a little bit like a Wednesday night uh, church business meeting, maybe. But by the end, it felt more like a testimonial worship service. Tell us what you saw and what you experienced. So it was really interesting. Walking in, it did feel like a church business meeting. So people were, like, dressed up, and it more dressed up than you would especially than you would think about for a, a movie theater on a Wednesday night. And um, they were kind of like respectful and quiet. And um, and then we watched the movie. And by the time we left, you know, you could tell people were really encouraged. And of course, the whole movie tells the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion, which is why I said it felt a bit like, you know, a testimony and worship service, because we were all leaving, um, giving praise to God for this powerful um, powerful conversion story of C.S. Lewis. All right, so there's a lot of people listening right now who only know the name of C.S. Lewis either um, because they started trying to read uh, Mere Christianity and gave up about a paragraph in, or they um, know the Chronicles of Narnia. So tell us more of the story. Well, so C.S. Lewis is originally from Ireland, and um, he grew up with parents who had great minds in a house that was full of books, and um, he had kind of all the right things for him to become the person he did, with one kind of glaring um, exception, and that is his mother ended up dying of cancer when he was a boy. And if you read the Narnia stories, um, not to give a spoiler alert for anyone who's not read them, but you get to the magician's nephew— And it tells the story of this boy whose mom is dying of cancer, and he desperately wants to save her. And you could read in that kind of what Lewis was hoping for and praying for, believing God for a miracle. And um, kind of like you talked about earlier, Carmen, with the fact that we're all facing challenges and suffering and pain. And for Lewis, when God didn't answer that, really his faith began to die. And so Later, as a young man, he studied um, under a tutor who was an atheist for whom Lewis had great admiration. Um, Even years later, writing about his conversion, um, he talked very in very um, glowing terms about this tutor, but the tutor helped kind of um, solidify Lewis's atheism. So he goes off to Oxford University to go to college and then is immediately um, ripped away from his studies um, to go serve in um, the army, to go serve in the military in World War One, And while he's there, he sees people around him um, dying. One of his closest friends dies. And so Lewis's atheism begins to seem more and more entrenched. But on the other hand, when Lewis gets back to Oxford, he is talking to people who are Christians. He's reading Christian authors. And as Lewis says, he just couldn't get away from um, the influence of God in his life. And so what the movie does is it really zooms in on Lewis's conversion experience. So if you've read Mere Christianity and struggled with it, this movie would actually be really good for you to to give you kind of the human side of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I love that. I love um I love how humanizing it is. I also really appreciate um I I think the encouragement to those for those of us who know people who you know were raised in believing homes um and with all the right influences and you know sent their kids to christian schools and took their kids to church and 
Um, and yet, as young people, those individuals, because of circumstances in their own life, because of pain and grief and suffering, and because of the circumstances in the world around us, for C.S. Lewis, it was World War I, but for, um, but for young people today, it's a myriad list of other things, um, you know, that they have turned away from the faith of the homes in which they were raised. There's a hope set before us here that God is working in spaces and places and through influences that um, that we don't control, but we can trust that God is pursuing people today. That That's absolutely right. And that's really Lewis, when he talks about his conversion, um, says that he was no more searching for God than a mouse searches for a cat. And so... Lewis recognized this was not because he was so, you know, a a truth seeker in terms of like spirituality, but rather God was after him. And Lewis says that God was the hunter and Lewis was the prey and God took unerring aim and um, got his target. And so I would say for anyone listening to recognize, even though it's a mystery, you know, in terms of God's sovereignty and human freedom, to know that God will accomplish his purposes. So if you're praying for a child who's walked away from the Lord or a grandchild who's walked away from the Lord, I hope you find in Lewis's story um, a powerful encouragement that God, God, God's God, got this. And if I could read just a, a quote from Lewis's Surprised by Joy, which is really the—it's um, Lewis's spiritual autobiography. So that it, it, if you read Surprised by Joy, and I've got a link to a uh, modern reprint of it— in the Weekend Worldview Reader, that really is the movie. The movie basically is a retelling of that book. But um, here's here's Lewis's own words about his conversion. And I won't try and do it with a British accent, so <laughs> our British friends can say thank you. Um, but here it is. Lewis says, you must picture me alone in that room in Modelin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? And then he goes on and concludes that paragraph with this line, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man, and his compulsion is our liberation. So that's Dan DeWitt reading from uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, We are talking about the untold story of C.S. Lewis as chronicled in the new movie, The Most Reluctant Convert. And it's actually uh, continuing to air in um, in cinemas and theaters nationwide, so we want you to to encourage you to check it out and see where it's playing near you. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dan about doodling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you're a doodler... I'm a doodler. Now, I am not a doodler of the caliber of uh, Dan DeWitt's doodling because Dan's doodling is purposeful and it produces actually like recognizable things. My doodling is just like 
pure doodling, but I'm going to see if even my doodling has a redemptive uh, has a redemptive edge, a redemptive possibility. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dan DeWitt, you can find what we're talking about at theolatte.com in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. One of the topics addressed is the topic of doodling. So, Dan, I'm a doodler. You're a doodler. Your doodling is way better than my doodling. But there was a doodler in the past who gives us both cause to not be embarrassed about our joy of doodling. Yes, and that is... The, the one and only G.K. Chesterton. And so um, I actually wanted to go into art and design and marketing when I was in high school. And so I was the uh, a, a local um, women's association. I'm not sure exactly what the, the association was for, but I do know that they paid my way um, to a summer scholarship program for Eastern Illinois University. And I studied design under the guy who designed the Big Ten logo. And I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. And then when I felt called to pursue Christian um, ministry, I really thought, you know, I need to put my sketch pad away. And so I kind of became embarrassed of the fact that I'm artsy and that I enjoy drawing and felt like, you know, what I really need to care about are textbooks. And it was it was years later that reading G.K. Chesterton and who had this brilliant mind. And of course, it relates to C.S. Lewis, what we were talking about earlier, because Lewis read Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, and Lewis says that was one of the great influences that led him away from atheism. But Chesterton illustrated as many um, as many books as he wrote, and so I've made it my goal to kind of collect as many um, early copies of Chesterton's work as I could, and in the process of doing that, I thought, you know what, daggone it, I need to draw again. So I started drawing again, and I'm not embarrassed about it anymore, and it's Chesterton who liberated me. So I just love that. I I meet people all the time, um, particularly young people, who feel, I mean, they genuinely feel like because they are a creative, because they are um, drawn to the arts, because they are drawn to um, uh, to to the parts of our culture that don't seem very redeemed, that well, that's either not the place that I'm called to serve as a Christian, or I need to go do that thing and fully embrace that that reality, and I don't have to be a Christian anymore. Can you talk about that struggle? Because I think that struggle is real. I know it's Yeah, real. I think it absolutely is. And I think sometimes we get this myopic view, this very limited view of what serving God looks like. And so for me as a teenager— and looking back, you know, I know like God use, uses everything, even if it's based on like your own misunderstanding. Um, but for me, it was like, if you want to really love Jesus, you'll become a missionary. If you want to love Jesus a little less than that, then maybe you'll become a youth pastor. And if you want to love Jesus still even a little less than that, you'll become just a normal church member. And um, Or if you don't want to love Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus at all, maybe you'll go into like the arts. And so— um, the reality is, as you read through the Bible, like even in the Old Testament, that God gave people these amazing artistic gifts, and 
it was a, a work of God's spirit in their life. And so God has created us in his image. I think our creativity is a reflection of the fact that he's a creator. Now, we don't create out of nothing, but in, this, in, in all reality, we are creating in a world God created and made us creative. So, man, do it for God's glory. And not that you have to like create art and then put a Bible verse on it, um, but just be a really good artist and be a really good person and through that and be a really good Christian. And through all that, you will have an amazing ministry. It's not one or the other. You don't have to choose between um, leading a Bible study or also um, having, you know, making a drawing. You could do both, and you could do both for God's glory. All right, so in anticipation of this conversation, I um, <clears throat> I discovered that there is a database. It's actually maintained at Vanderbilt Divinity School, um, and it's called Art in the Christian Tradition. Um, and you can search it by keyword. You can search it by scripture reference. Um, wow. And I, ju- I know. I thought this is a really cool project. There are currently 6,537 images in the collection, um, but none by you. So I think they don't know that you're out there, right? So I just, I think they need help. I think they need help more fully developing the art in the Christian tradition database. So ACT, the the ACT database. Um, And I just want to say, you know, thank you to whoever Gene and Alexander Hurd are, because they're the ones who apparently conceived and paid for the art in the Christian tradition database at Vanderbilt. Like, I think that's cool, yeah. and I think that, like, when when I consider whoever this couple is or was, Gene and Alexander, you know, clearly they wanted people to be able to access art that amplifies Scripture, art that um, is keyed to—I mean, literally, this thing is cross-referenced to the Bible. They want people to be able to see that art— is a useful tool in the communication of the gospel. Um, And so I just, that was just one of the things, Dan, that as I was thinking about our conversation today, um, you know, I'm just noting, like, there's a lot of art that is produced by Christians and used over time to communicate the gospel. I mean, the very development of stained glass windows seems to be part of, of this conversation. Absolutely. And uh, word to herd, the herd family for doing that. That is awesome. Right? And, Isn't um, that cool? Absolutely. You know, and so I think that this also is a reminder that sometimes we need to, we get so entrenched in our own kind of tribe, in our own moment, that if we look back at the history of the church, Christians have historically really cared about art. And so if you are an aspiring artist who loves the Lord, do it all for God's glory and sense his favor in it. We need we need your tribe to increase. We need more people who will use the arts. And I'm always reminded, if I could squeeze this in before we're out of time, of Peter Hitchens, whose brother was the famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens. Peter Hitchens traces his conversion back to a painting that depicted mm-hmm. God's judgment. And he says, standing before that painting, he had a deep sense that he would stand before God and so it was art. You know, Hitchens said something to the effect of Peter Hitchens, that an atheist is more likely to be converted through an ambush of the heart than an argument of the head. And for him, it was art that really led him back towards faith. I love that. I love that. I'm thinking about a, 
a photographer whose name is not leaping to my mind right now, so I'm going to have to do a little more um, thinking on this topic, who, you know, who is using um, images where, you know, he's featuring Jesus as as we as we think of Jesus, right, in in robes with long hair and Middle Eastern, um, but putting him in contemporary settings to help people oh, wow. see, like to help people see that Jesus is walking around in the midst of all this right now, um, hmm. present and active. So um, anyway, there you go. I think that art is a powerful, powerful medium. We live in an image rich time um, and we ought to be using those images to uh, bear witness and testimony to the one whose image we ultimately bear. So Dan DeWitt, as always, thank you so much, brother. Thanks, Carmen. Have a great Friday. What a joy. You too. Check out uh, what Dan's writing. Uh, the things we talked about today are at theolatte.com in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. We'll be right back. All right. So I want you to reach out today to somebody who you know is in a place of pain. It might be physical pain. It might be emotional pain. Um, Maybe they have suffered the loss of a job. Maybe their nest is uncomfortably empty. Maybe they're sitting uh, next to an empty chair um, or in an empty pew. Maybe they're suffering loneliness. Maybe they're just fatigued by the culture or the days in which we live. Um, Those who desire to see God glorified, I just think that we need to be people who are pressing into other people's lives and reminding ourselves and those around us um, that although the pain is real, it is not forever for those who are redeemed in Christ Jesus, Um, that the pain does come to an end, that heaven is real, that God is present, and that God is active, working right now um, to redeem. So let's turn to him. Um, Even as we deeply feel the problems of this world and we recognize that we're too small to solve them, we also recognize the greatness and the goodness of a God who is all-sufficient, not only to the challenges of this day, but to the challenges of every day. So he is redeeming. He has redeemed in Christ Jesus, and he is redeeming even now. And ultimately, yes, my friends, he will redeem the greatest of every uh, of every pain, which is the spiritual pain that we experience as sinners who are in need of reconciliation with the living God unto eternity, and every little pain that reminds us just how far we live from the reality of Eden. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.